Our sermon text is again from the last part of Ephesians 3. So listen carefully to God's word. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Father, please bless the reading, the hearing, the preaching, and the meditations on your word this hour so that we please you in our meditations and in our thoughts so that they are pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. A kite flying high is a glorious thing. A kite's glory, we could say, is in its flight and especially in its height. There's no glory in an earthbound kite. But a kite flying high above the trees is a wonderful thing to behold. A tattered kite lying on the ground is a sad sight, but a kite that is riding on the waves of the wind will cause even busy passers-by to stop and watch this thing that is soaring and ascending, flying before the face of heaven. A similar thing can be said of our prayers. The glory of a prayer is in its height. Earthbound prayers are sad and ineffective. What we want are ascending petitions that pierce heaven, as the Puritan Thomas Watson put it, and that reach the ear of God. The prayers of faith soar on the wings of the Spirit into the very throne room of God. But kites and prayers have something else in common, which is the main subject of today's sermon from the end of Ephesians 3. Kites and prayers alike must be grounded. A kite that's not securely fastened to a string, which in turn must somehow be anchored to the ground, usually by means of a person, has no chance of maintaining glorious heights. It will either never get off the ground, if it's not properly grounded, or 
it will fall quickly to a sad, earthbound existence. Likewise, a prayer not securely fastened to God and his purposes, a prayer not anchored to the word and will of God, has no chance of reaching glorious heights, no chance of piercing heaven and reaching the ear of the Father. In the last three sermons on Ephesians 3, 14 to 21, we focused mostly on the two petitions in verses 16 to 19, which form the heart of this passage, the heart of Paul's prayer for the saints. In verses 16 and 17, remember God teaches us to pray that God would strengthen the saints with power through his spirit and their inner being. Then in verses 17 to 19, he teaches us to pray that the spirit's power would enable the saints to comprehend the infinite, limitless dimensions of Christ's love for them. I wonder how many churches in the world have a majority of their members praying Bible prayers like this one for one another routinely. Does a majority of the members of Christ the King Church pray Bible prayers like this one for one another routinely? Our goal in this series on prayer is to learn how to pray, especially how to pray for one another with effective prayers, prayers that are in line with God's word and God's will. In order to pray effectively, as Paul did, our prayers of intercession for the brethren must be grounded both in God's purposes and in God's paternity. God's purposes and God's paternity. Paternity means fatherhood. The prayers of the children of God are grounded in his fatherliness. Last time we covered the first ground. We got into that, that first ground, God's purposes. But since it's tied so closely to the second ground, and since it's been a few weeks, allow me to review the first ground, which is God's Purposes. This also gives me a chance to say some things better than I did the first time around. God's, or Paul's petitions were certainly grounded in God's purposes. He says in verse 14, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. For this reason. For what reason? What, what reason does Paul have in mind? He's referring back to something earlier in his book, obviously, but what is it? Well, if you, if you go back to the beginning of the chapter and, and try to figure out what Paul has in mind, you find in verse 1 of chapter 3 that it also begins with, for this reason. And then Paul trails off without finishing his thought, as he is wont to do. Apparently, when Paul started what, he, what we call chapter 3, that came later, he didn't divided into chapters, but when he began what we call chapter 3, he was headed toward his prayer at the end of the chapter. But then right after he wrote the, those words, for this reason, he realized he needed to say some other important things first. And this means that for this reason ultimately refers back to Ephesians 2, something before Ephesians 3. And there Paul celebrates God's grace and bringing Jews and Gentiles together, lost Jews, lost Gentiles together by faith 
through the cross of Christ and forming them into one new structure, a new house, a new living temple, a new dwelling place for God on the basis of the death and the resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. And so remember Paul's writing to converted uh, Gentiles, Gentile Christians. And with that context in mind, consider what he says to these Ephesian believers at the end of Ephesians 2, starting in verse 19. I'll read four verses. This is the reason Paul prays as he does at the end of chapter 3. This is from the end of chapter 2. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit, Ephesians 2, 19 to 22. That's why Paul bows his knee, bows his knees before the Father and prays for the saints in Ephesus. God's declared purpose in creating this new house, this new house of God, is to grow the people in it, to mature the people in it into a holy temple in the Lord. Paul says, being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit, as Paul says at the end of, end of Ephesians 2. So the big picture I want us to see is that Paul's petitions for spiritual power or resurrection power, the same thing, for spiritual growth in the second half of Ephesians 3 are grounded, they are rooted, founded on God's revealed purposes outlined at the end of Ephesians 2. God's purpose is to create a new structure, a new building, a new edifice, a new temple, a new house that the Spirit is building, glorifying in Christ. God's purpose, His stated goal, His explicit goal, intention, is the edification of the church. His church, the people of God. And that's exactly how Paul prays in Ephesians 3. It's for this reason he prays. The content of Paul's prayer is not grounded in his own aims and desires, but in the aims and intentions and desires of Almighty God. As I said last time, what Paul teaches us about God's purposes is that God is far more interested in our holiness than he is in our comfort. He delights in our purity more so than in our possessions. Listen again to this quote that I read last time from Don Carson. God shows himself more clearly to men and women who enjoy him and obey him than to men and women whose horizons revolve around good jobs, nice houses, and reasonable health. He is far more committed to building a corporate temple in which his spirit dwells than he is in preserving our reputations. He is more vitally disposed to display his grace than to flatter our intelligence. He is more concerned for justice than for our ease. 
He is more deeply committed to stretching our faith than our popularity. He prefers that his people live in disciplined gratitude and holy joy rather than in pushy self-reliance and glitzy happiness. He wants us to pursue daily death, not self-fulfillment. For the latter, self-fulfillment leads to death, while the former, daily death, leads to life. The second ground of prayer is God's paternity, God's fatherliness. Paul prays to the heavenly Father in line with how Jesus taught his disciples to pray in Matthew 6. Paul writes in verses 14 and 15, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Now, verse 15, that last part I just read, is notoriously difficult to translate and interpret. From whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. It might mean that every notion of fatherhood in the nuclear family, in, um, in clans and tribes, all forms of fatherhood and patriarchy find their model or archetype in God the Father himself. In other words, God is the supreme father, the original of all valid fatherhood in creation. He's the eternal original of all created fatherhood. Or Paul may mean, he, he, he may be using this expression that's difficult for us 2,000 years later to understand. Uh, he may be using this idiom, this expression, to remind the Ephesians that God is the heavenly Father of all his people, whether they are still in this world or already in heaven. Either way, it's undeniably true that God is the supreme, original, archetypal Father and that, and that He is the special, covenantal Father of all His people, whether they are in heaven already or still on earth. And so we may not need to choose between these two interpretations. In the modern Western world, fatherhood no longer carries with it the, the dignity and the authority it once had. In ancient thought, in addition to being the breadwinner and protector and the one who sought the good of his family, the father was the one who ruled the family or the tribe. Therefore, he was the one who dispensed favors. That picture better resembles the God that we approach in prayer. And that's the analogy that Paul's thinking of here. The God we ask favors from is both a transcendent ruler and a loving father who has adopted us into his household. Our heavenly father is not only sovereign and powerful, Though he is that, to be sure. He is also our kin, our blood relative, we could say. He is related to us by the blood of his son. Our Lord's father is our father. 
which is why Jesus taught us to pray to his Father as our Father. In fact, right after Jesus teaches his disciples to pray our Father in the Sermon on the Mount, he goes on in that same sermon to describe the nature of your heavenly Father, of our heavenly Father, of his heavenly Father. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, yet your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Matthew 6, 31 to 33. Or a chapter later, I'm going to read a slightly different translation here to, to draw out something that we may miss in this familiar passage. Keep asking and it will be given to you. Keep searching and you will find. Keep knocking and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who searches finds and, the one, and to the one who knocks the door will be opened. What man among you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Matthew 7, verses 7 to 11. Whenever you approach God with your request, with your petitions, the things that you need, remember that the God you address is your heavenly Father. He's the model Father, the archetypal Father, and the personal loving Father of you and all your brothers and sisters in the faith. You and all the others in this household who have been bought by the blood of Jesus. He is the father of all his blood-bought sons and daughters. Remember that he is a good father who loves to give good gifts to his children. He loves to give them more than we love to receive them. He doesn't just know how to give you good gifts. He also delights in doing so. If you've ever given a, a much-desired gift to a child, to a grateful child, then you've experienced something of the joy that God experiences in giving you what you ask for and search for and knock for in prayer. That's the heart of your Heavenly Father. Never forget that the bedrock of your prayers, the ground of your petitions is the, is the loving nature and fatherly character of God. Again, Carson says, the more we reflect on the kind of God who is there, the kind of God who has disclosed himself in Scripture and supremely in Jesus Christ, the kind of God who has revealed his plans and purposes for his own household, the kind of God who hears and answers prayer, 
the more we shall be encouraged to pray. Prayerlessness is often an index of our ignorance of God. Real and vital knowledge of God not only teaches us what to pray, but also gives us a powerful incentive to pray. Well, now that we've examined the two grounds of Paul's two petitions, we need to finish our study of this text by learning from Paul how to pray all of our prayers to the glory and praise of God alone. Paul concludes his prayer in verses 20 and 21 with a doxology. Doxology means word of praise. Actually, we could say that Paul ends with a twofold doxology, two words of praise, one in verse 20 and another in verse 21. In verse 20, he writes, Now to him, that is, to God, our heavenly Father, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. Stop right there for a minute. It's kind of all one doxology, but we're going to take this one verse at a time. I've not had a more comforting thought or a more staggering thought all year than this truth in verse 20. The God I petition in prayer is ready and able and willing to do immeasurably more abundantly more than all I ask. All my prayers put together. Immeasurably more than everything I've prayed. And even more than I think about. If you're like me, sometimes you think about things but forget to really pray for them or at least pray for them seriously. I've, I often desire something, and a good thing, a holy desire, but forget to petition God for it. I see a need in myself or my family or in one of you or in the world, and I, 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 it, it's on my heart and on my mind, even weighing on me, but I don't always remember to petition God for it to commit it to prayer. Many times God has given me in his grace, in his mercy, in his compassion, he has given me a desire of my heart in a sort of obvious way which causes me to realize somewhat you know, regretfully that I had never committed that desire, that gift, that desired gift, to serious prayer maybe even to any prayer. I had never asked for it or searched for it or knocked for it in persistent prayer, the way the widow prays in Luke. And yet God gave it to me anyway. Have you ever experienced that? When that happens, it reminds me of God's readiness and willingness to give good gifts. And it, and it makes me wonder how much more God is ready and willing to give to me if only I would pray and maybe even think and desire bigger. Now, the, 
the overly sophisticated and perhaps theologically rigorous might read verse 20 and be tempted to think that in reality it's too optimistic to hope that God will actually answer these two petitions that Paul offers up, that we should offer up in verses 16 to 19. After all, when you you look at it, as we've studied these, we've seen Paul's petitions, uh, he, he petitions God for some extraordinary blessings, blessings of great worth, eternal value. He asks for spiritual blessings of immeasurable value. Now we, so we can all agree that God's, um, God is favorable. We can all agree that Paul's prayers are inspiring. They certainly provide good fodder for our prayers and maybe even good fodder for a sermon series on prayer. But should we really anticipate favorable answers that are commensurate with the request? favorable answers to these bold requests. Paul's answer is at least, absolutely, at least you should expect that. Not not only should we expect God to answer these petitions favorably, favorably, but we should also count on him to do far more abundantly than all we ask. Or think. Because that's the kind of heavenly father he is. This is about God. It's about prayer. This is about the character of God, the nature of God, the loving kindness of God, the loyal love of God, as much as anything else. Our God is not just all-powerful and therefore able to do anything he wants. And anything we ask, he also is a generous father and therefore ready, able, and willing to dispense favors, to give good gifts to his children in abundance, more than we can imagine. It's not holy or pious to think of God as less generous than he is. Think about that. That's our inclination. We tend to think of God as less generous than he is. And we might even be tempted to think that that's that's holy and pious, to think of God as being stern and slow to give, you know, until we've earned it maybe or something like that. that's, That's not a holy and pious thought. Because that's not a true thought of God. Actually, it demeans God when we think of him as no more loving and generous than our best example of a human father. And so think of it. Think of what Paul's saying here. Think of the promise here. You can't ask for anything that is beyond God's ability to give it. In fact, you can't even think of anything that is beyond your father's ability to give it. Paul's doxology in verse 20 is more than a word of praise. It's a powerful incentive to run to the heavenly father with your petitions. 
petitions that are grounded in his good purposes and his fatherly love and care. His purposes and his paternity. What's the ultimate purpose of our prayers? We've talked about a lot of you know, secondary, we might call them, secondary purposes or proximate purposes, immediate purposes of prayer. You know, one is to get the gifts that he wants to give. You ask and you receive. That's, that's a secondary purpose. But what's the ultimate purpose? The final purpose. You know, the purpose of all purposes. That there be glory to God in the church and in Christ Jesus forever. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Verse 21 is a proof text for one of the five solas of the Reformation, right? Five solas of the Reformation. Soli Deo Gloria, which means to the glory of of God alone, soli deo gloria, to God alone be the glory. We can ask God for all the right things. We can have the right form in our prayers and still stumble quite badly in our prayers if we are, sti- if, if we are still at the center of things, of our thoughts of our imagination, of our desires, our ambitions, our goals, our purposes. We can ask for all the right things and still stumble badly if we are still at the center. It's possible to ask God for good, God-honoring things with scriptural language for self-centered reasons. It's possible to pray God-centered words without putting God at the center. That's what we're talking about here. We, we may ask for God's power to make us holy and mature as believers. We may ask for strength to comprehend the infinite length and width and height and depth of God's love in Christ and yet distort these good gifts by envisioning ourselves at the center of the universe, which we imagine is revolving around us and our spiritual growth and our good works. We can make it all about ourselves, even in that moment. Once again, we must consider how even our prayers might be infected and undermined by the root sin that welled up in the hearts of Adam and Eve in the garden. A kind of self-centeredness, self-glorification that that usurps God's rightful place at the center of all reality, including the center of our hearts. Ascending prayers that pierce heaven and reach the ear of your heavenly Father are not prayers that leave you thinking about yourself. They are prayers that by God's working in them, give you a bigger vision of God who's at the center of everything. 
Petitions that soar gloriously on the wings of the Spirit are not petitions that leave you pondering God's will primarily in terms of its immediate effect on your life. Prayers that reach glorious heights don't leave you longing for blessings simply so that you will be blessed as an end in itself with no reference to God and His glory. It's not enough to grow in the content of your prayers. It's not enough to improve in the quality or quantity of your petitions. It's also not enough to ask God for good spiritual gifts so that you might receive those good spiritual gifts. It's not enough. It's, it's necessary, but it's not enough. God calls you to something higher or deeper He calls you to have a God-exalting, God-centered disposition, which is impossible unless you are a born-again child of God. Only those who have been regenerated by the Spirit can remove themselves from the center of their universe and glorify God instead of self. It's an impossible spiritual feat without God's help, without God's work, without God's doing. The Lord calls you, though, to new heights in verse 21, to pray just as you live with a specific ultimate goal in mind and in heart. The glory of God alone. It's the hardest thing that we do the hardest thing to do. Are you willing to give God the throne of your heart and your prayers as well as your life? The deepest diagnostic question for every believer is this. Has God become so central to all your thoughts and pursuits in your life and in your prayers that you can't imagine asking him for anything without consciously desiring that the answer bring him glory. Let me say that again. Let me ask that question again, that, this diagnostic question. Has God become so central to all your thoughts and pursuits in your life and in your praying that you can't imagine asking him for anything without consciously desiring that the answer bring him glory. That's God's call and that final word of praise in verse 21. When you pray to God, pray that he might be glorified in the church and in Jesus Christ, the head of his church, as the saints are conformed to his image daily by the power of his resurrection, which is the power of the eternal spirit of God. When you pray to God, pray that he might be glorified in the brethren as they make him the center of their existence. This is how you mature in prayer. Learn to use not only Paul's petitions, but also his praises 
his doxology. Adopt not only Paul's words, but also his profound God-centeredness and his ultimate goal of glorifying God alone. Let's pray. Help us, God, to pray as you have taught us to pray, to pray according to your word with petitions that are grounded in your good purposes and in your fatherly care and love for us. Teach us to pray to your glory, the glory of the one true God alone. We ask this for Christ's sake. Amen.